What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Michael Phillips. Oh, Lucille, when it's convenient, would you mind getting me a copy of the house keys, please? You don't need one. I'm sorry. There are parts of the house that are unsafe. It will take you a few days to familiarize yourself. Then, should you still feel you need them, I'll have copies made. I don't want you wandering into the Pantheon room unaccompanied, Michael. No telling what mischief you'd get into. Just wanted to see the Marx Brothers wing, actually, Josh. Is that around here? Wait, where is it? I don't see it. <laughs> uh, that's uh, still being built. Okay. <laughs> Jessica Chastain and Mia Vasakovska in that clip from Crimson Peak from Pan's Labyrinth director Guillermo del Toro. Our review, plus inspired by Steven Spielberg's new Bridge of Spies, will share our top five Cold War movies. That and much more. Wipe that cookie off your face, Michael. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Many of our listeners have begun using Movie after hearing about it on the show, and we got this note from Jen in Sunvale, California. Hi, Adam and Josh. I wanted to let you guys know that I'm really loving Movie so far. I signed up mainly to watch Janun. I hope you guys discuss this soon, by the way, and thought I might find time to watch maybe one or two more films before the trial was up. Instead... I've watched six or seven, including the PTA, and each is so unique. Their curation is spot on, and way to go to whoever is writing their film descriptions, because he or she makes each one sound intriguing. My favorites so far, not including Junoon, are The Conformist, You the Living, and The Dossier. The Dossier was rare for me in that I don't think I've seen a Chinese independent film before. Adam, there's also a super short by Jody Mack playing right now that's only four minutes. I think he should be able to fit that in. It's called Blanket Statement Number 2. It's all or nothing. This is four frenetic minutes of blanket images with a constant hyper hum in the background, but still such a manageable time. I also bought some music by La Boucherette's based on the feature in the Sicario episode. Apparently film spotting is gaining too much influence on my life. Thanks for the recommendation. Keep up the good work. I think you both win the prize for most movies mentioned that aren't actually going to be in the top five before doing the top five for last week's episode. Yeah, John, that did get a little bit out of control. Apologies for that. On Mubi this week, there are a couple of other picks we want to highlight, aside from those that Jen mentioned. Reality is the surprise winner of the 2012 Cannes Grand Prix. It's Matteo Garone's enigmatic follow-up to Gamora. This is no simple satire of reality TV, but something much stranger, Mubi says. An absurd comic nightmare about a country caught between the sweet life and the Pope. Somewhere I bet Buñuel is smiling. Computer Chess is another highlight on movie right now. Blazing out of Sundance and proceeding directly to the cult canon, Computer Chess is one of movie's favorite indies of the decade. They call it a hilarious, weird, endlessly inventive shaggy dog comedy about the birth of our new era from mumblecore headmaster Andrew Bujalski. I liked Computer Chess myself. I called it a movie of wry simplicity subjected to avant-garde tinkering. So that's one I can recommend that you check out on movie. One more movie pick here for you, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. This is a Park Chan-wook film I have not caught up with. He ended his Vengeance trilogy in style here and to great blockbuster success with the characteristically twisted Baroque thriller movie cause it a beautiful trip to the dark side and the end of the trilogy's rocky road towards salvation. 
So there's a whole bunch of recommendations for you from Mubi. If you do want to check Mubi out, remember that every day their curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy and you get all this for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. My guest host this week is the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. Michael, always good to have you on the show. Well, Heidi Ho, Josh, how you doing? <laughs> uh, you know, we joked about not giving you the keys to the Film Spotting Manor, but don't feel too bad about that. Adam still hasn't given me the password for the document about the Film Spotting Pronunciation Guide. Okay. <laughs> when I get my hands on that. It, Boy, it's going to be a big day it's for the show. It's going to be good. Everything's, everybody's going to sound like Iowa if it's, exactly. if it's up to Adam. Exactly. Later on in the show, Michael and I get the Soviet premiere on the phone to try and stop a global nuclear holocaust. Those damn Ruskies. We'll share our top five Cold War movies along with some thoughts on Steven Spielberg's new Cold War thriller, Bridge of Spies. But first, Guillermo del Toro has given us many memorable movie monsters with Pacific Rim's Kaiju, The Pale Man from Pan's Labyrinth, and Hellboy. But what awaits us in Crimson Peak? Ghosts are real. That much I know. I've seen them all my life. Would you be mine? Edith, this is my sister. I don't think she's the right choice. You have to trust me. Thomas, your bride is frozen. I'll run you a hot bath. Josh, it's clear enough that if you watch even one of Guillermo del Toro's films, whether in Spanish or in English, whether it's The Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth or Hellboy, this is a director who is certifiably crazy about the expressive possibilities of cinema. Now, whether you fall for his latest, Crimson Peak, or whether you don't, you have to give him this. He's more than a storyboard artist with a taste for the macabre. Crimson Peak is struggling to find a popular audience, though, at least in its first weeks. And, man, it has its fierce critical admirers along with its detractors. It's not a conventional horror film. It's not a haunted house film, really. And it's not even a straightforward gothic romance in the vein of the movies Del Toro has acknowledged as influences on Crimson Peak. We're talking about Rebecca, Jane Eyre, Dragonwick, The Spiral Staircase. They're all floating around the moat of this picture. It's set in 1901. Mia Wasikowska plays an aspiring American writer of supernatural stories, Tom Hiddleston is the dashing but slightly off Englishman who's come to Buffalo, New York in search of financing to get his clay mining operation back home in England up and running again. Jessica Chastain is his scowling sister who's constantly skulking around like a summer intern version of Judith Anderson and Rebecca. Josh, the people that love this film love it for the reasons a lot of us love a lot of different movies, for the way they look and breathe 
and really just for the pleasures of evocative atmosphere. And maybe they love it less for the effectiveness of the narrative. Does this describe the movie's effect on you, Josh Larson? So is it is it just style for me, or did I find more there? I mean, yeah. the, the, the style would have been enough because this is so sumptuous and such an accomplishment of production design and art design and how those things are not just used to show off those talents but to be interwoven with the themes of the film, the narrative, and the characters, too, as you know, metaphors for their emotional states and so forth. So I think that this is what Del Toro has always done mm-hmm. and maybe not so much in Pacific Rim. That was one of the reasons I was not a huge fan of that movie is because I thought Del Toro's talents were put to more blockbuster use and he didn't get a chance to really show these sorts of abilities that he has and the team of filmmakers he usually works with. So I was enthralled with Crimson Peak on that level, but I'm not going to simply defend it on that level. I think there's a lot more going on in this movie than the visual aesthetic style. And it's interwoven, as I said, with it. It's interwoven with the very form of this film. And I think it is interesting that a lot of the debate over the movie has been, and some of it's instigated, as you suggested by Del Toro himself, over, well, what do you call this? Is this a horror movie? Is this a ghost movie? Is this a gothic romance? Well, I don't really care at the yeah, end of yeah, the day. Yeah, no, I don't because, care about that either. Because it's, it's all working together in a way that has brought about something fairly unique and interesting that is at heart to me an artist's journey. Hmm. I think part of what's getting lost in the concern over what genre does this fall in or even how amazing the visuals are is that this really is a simple story of Edith, the Vasakovska character, coming into her own as an artist. And what I appreciate about that is because the movie is almost, maybe this is what some viewers have a problem with, it is intentionally struggling with itself. Hmm. Were you surprised at how long this seemed to be a straightforward, sumptuous period drama? I mean, it begins in Buffalo, New York. We don't see this house until what, maybe 15, 20 right, minutes Right, right. This is, we should, we should, and without giving up too much away, this gloomy, spooky, three and a half story English manor out there in the middle of nowhere on the moors called Crimson Peak is just like Manderley and Rebecca, or in a much lesser known film, Joseph Mankiewicz's film Dragonwick. It's the Dragonwick estate up in the Hudson Valley in early 19th century New York. And, you know, th- this has to be a place of centrality to the story in that this is where everything, all the secrets are kept, all all the hidden and all the atmosphere has to be really, really properly and kind of like, you know, flourishing and, and really kind of active or else it does just sort of die. And I, I guess for you, you know, it, do, it doesn't. And, well, there's, and, yeah, it's, it's it, and what's, it has that much power and that much strength in the film, yet, like I said, it takes a while to get there. And I, I think that is purposeful because I think what, Del Toro is capturing here is this tension between being a respectable literary drama, romantic drama, which the movie is for its first 15 to 20 minutes in Buffalo, New York, where Edith grows up with her construction magnet father and first meets Thomas when he's abroad visiting. It's fighting itself to become this straight out horror genre piece at the end. And Edith is repeatedly told she writes ghost stories, right, and wants to write ghost stories. But she's told, well, you're a woman. Stick with romance. That's that's what you should. Re- Jane Austen should be your right, model. Right, and I, I love right. who she she says, well, I, I prefer Mary Shelley. <laughs> and what the movie is exploring is how is she going to find her genre, find where she is most skilled at. And not only that, 
but also, and we can get into this a little bit later, how can she be a true artist in that genre? Because at the beginning, she has some experience with ghosts, and her stories are somewhat intriguing because of that, but they don't fully flower until she experiences real terror, right. which she does at Crimson Well, uh, yeah, okay, this is one of the things I got caught up in, and I, and I do sound like kind of a kind of a literal-minded, you know, what are you trying to be sort of guy when I, when I sort through my objections or my, I guess my resistance points to this beautifully made film that I, I just frankly struggled with almost throughout. And it's the kind of work, Josh, that I, I do look forward to seeing a second time just to, just to kind of hopefully grapple a little more effectively with just why, why I couldn't, uh, you know, kind of get the gears going on this thing. But I guess one, one, a few things just mechanically happen as storytelling that, that, that I, I really did think held it back. A, you get the establishment right away of the presence of ghosts in Edith's life, right? Her, the ghost of her mother appears in the first five minutes of the picture. So there's no spoiler issue there. And it, it it's a kind of a conventional Whoa, scare moment. And um, it's the kind of thing that Del Toro's done before and we've seen it in a million other movies. Then it sort of goes away and it just establishes, you know, it's established and then it goes away. And then, as you say, we get the gothic romance and sort of the period we kind of lovely period of vacation of Buffalo, nice combination of gorgeous art direction by this well, production designer, Tom Sanders, and the art director, Brant Gordon. I mean, uh, this is really, these are the stars, okay? Sure. Uh, and uh, that plus just uh, just enough digital work to kind of really make you feel like you are back in Buffalo with hundreds and hundreds of extras and bowler hats, right? And Del Toro loves startling the audience with these bizarre juxtapositions. He's, 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 it's he's, a hint of the horror that's going to come. Absolutely. And then when, he, when you have the murder sequence, there's a key murder sequence in the first 45 minutes it's a really vicious nasty painful scene and it really is at odds with everything we're we're used to associating with this sort of sumptuous period world right no matter what kind of gothic romance we're talking about you just didn't get that kind of violence in the old films but i guess to to the degree i was interested in crimson peak josh it was because the referencing to now very unfashionable pictures and genres like Dragonwick and the Spiral Staircase films that don't even really have a lot of currency with any popular audience. It's nice to see a guy, a filmmaker, who really knows what he's doing, embrace it all. But I, I, I think like Coppola's Dracula, Josh, that's a film that m- many people love simply for the way it looks and feels and breathes. Mm-hmm. This is a film where... I really would rather just sort of sit with um, gorgeously illustrated storybook versions of all the design work and and then kind of to hell with the story. Because, the story isn't know, there for on you. On some huh? level, it's just, yeah, I, I, you know, I was... I guess the, this understanding of it as a, a narrative of an artist's journey allowed me to set aside that I wasn't expecting or needing surprises or even really needing scares. Other criticisms I've seen of this is it's not very frightening. And you mentioned when the mother's ghost appears at the beginning that it is familiar. But I think, again, that's intentional because as in many Del Toro films, ghosts aren't necessarily, and in many horror films in general, they're to be threatening. They're in a way to tell their story. Right. Um, or in this case, to tell Edith's story. Right. The mother is there to tell Edith's story. So so that that did work for me in a sense that it, it set that story in motion. I didn't need to be scared. I didn't need to be surprised. What mm. I liked to see, especially from a filmmaker who is known for fantasy horror, a movie that's operating as a consideration of the value of those sorts of genres and also how does one find their 
voice within them. And I think the entire form of the film, this was I was hinting at before, it's not only Edith's narrative, but the form of the film echoes this as well, because we do get that hint at the very beginning. It's a, it's a little burst of horror, and then we go into the period piece. But we keep getting these assaults of horror that feel so jarring to me. So that murder you mentioned, it wasn't so much that it was scary, but it was that it intruded so violently. Yeah, it's arresting. We There's no question about it. It's arresting. And, yeah. and, and as the movie progresses, it, it's like the horror genre is just putting its claws on this film and claiming it. And in the end, even though I knew because of these other films that I have seen where things were likely going, practically, narratively, plot pointedly, still I liked seeing it flourish in this full horror way because to me it felt like a personal artistic statement on Edith's behalf that I you know I've been well, through this I've survived this and, and now I'm an artist who can write about it there's a lot of kind of sly self uh, meta critique of what's going on here because we have uh, there's a moment where somebody asks Edith in a patronizing way because you know women can't write fiction anyway is kind of the attitude of these these priggish males back in you know like turn of the century Buffalo right uh, you know what, what are you doing writing ghost stories well the story's not really a ghost story but there's a ghost in it and mm-hmm. then, of course they're describing the film at that point and I guess I am intrigued Josh by by and I and I love even though I don't like the movie very much I love the wave of feeling on behalf of the critics who really really responded to it. Uh, they feel very protective of it, and they're kind of exasperated at a lot of the grousy response to it because I, they they know that it's the sort of medium, largish budget studio effort that w- can only get made if a guy like Del Toro has a reasonably good sized hit in his recent past, like well, on a lower budget pans, *Red Labyrinth* and *Pacific Rim*, which was a little disappointing in terms of the commercial performance, but did well enough. But you know that it it's a it is as you say a personal statement it's got you know every scene has got 15 shades of red uh, either on the walls or in the clay or i mean it, it is art directed to within an inch of its life and sometimes i adore that i mean i just just happily spent 70 minutes watching these quay brothers animated shorts over at the music box and that is if that isn't just simply spellbinding evocation and atmosphere and a nightmarish, uh, wondrous detail in every shot, I don't know what is, you know, and, and the story issues aren't even a concern there because you're not dealing with story. Maybe I'm just reviewing my own needs and expectations with one of these stories, and maybe that's why I need to give it a second look. I'm willing to issue a full retraction, Josh. <laughs> On, on not just this opinion. No need, no need to go that far, Michael. The, <laughs> you are listening to Film Spotting. That's Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune sitting in this week for Adam. I'm Josh Larson. And I just want to say one thing about the production design in that red clay, which is over the top <laughs> and effusive. And, and again, though, the it's way that... It's a fulgent. It's a fulgent. That's an even better word. The, the way it's incorporated to the theme in the story as... So the house is sitting on this red clay, right? And when it, it gets a heavy rain, it actually seeps up through the floor. Blood. The snow bleeds. (laughs) Makes some sense, okay? We can put logic to that. But by, again, by the time the horror genre has gotten its claws on this thing in the climax, (laughs) the clay is inexplicably coming out of the walls on the second story. I mean, mean, that's when we've just, we're one-upping Kubrick's blood coming out of the elevator here, which is, (laughs) we're just, how crazy can we get with this? And and I guess I was all on board with that. Let's talk about something we haven't really gotten into yet, and I 
that maybe this is something that either held you back as well or, or you appreciated. But the performances, uh, I you yeah. know Vasakovska and yeah, I like her a lot. Maybe, good every time. I mean, she's yeah, great, yeah. I, I thought so too. And I thought in a in a little bit of a different way. Maybe they're both being typecast. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, based I, I, on the color of their skin. I, I think, that the, you know, the most divisive performance in here, Josh, as far as I can tell, reading a, a few reviews after I wrote my own, was Jessica Chastain's. I, I thought, oh. I do think, much as okay, I... let's start there, because I thought she was great. Ah, uh, you're wrong. What? Uh, I mean, it's, in, it, you know, I respect your right to be wrong, but you're wrong. Uh, the, I, I think she's got considerable range as an actress. She's, a, um, I'm not quite sure she's the technician... That somebody like Streep is or somebody, but look, those comparisons can wait. The impression I got is that her response to this role was to have as least fun on screen as is actorly possible. I just thought it was a very tight, clenched performance rather than sort of a... Uh, an activating one. I thought it was a passive performance. I really did. And no matter how much is going on with that character and the, the deed she's doing, t- especially toward the end, I, I just didn't get the sense that she had an intuitive way into how to play that part. It wasn't, uh, I don't know. Vasikowska, a different story. I, I believe her in period and I believe her in all kind of moods and shades and tones, I think she's I think she's excellent. But I, there's something off with Chastain here. No passive performance. I mean, yeah. she's this seems like a retort to other performances of hers that could be considered passive. She's you mentioned Judith Anderson and Rebecca. She is going full Mrs. Danvers here. No, I, mean, it I don't is, think I don't think so. It, it's by not, the end, it's not that kind of it's not that kind of hammy. Oh, you know, it gets florid. there. It gets there. That that ending where there's we don't want to give it away, but where they get out to that bloody crimson snow and have a showdown. I mean, there is a things, smackdown. Yeah. Things are getting a little out of hand and Chastain is committed in a way that I haven't seen her on screen. This is not to say it's her best performance at all, because I think it is less nuanced. It's, the material is so different right. than particularly than what she first made a name for things like Tree of Life and, and those sort of right. ethereal presences yeah, that yeah, she brings. Right. I mean, th- yeah. this is a retort to those sorts of elements, too. And I think she keeps this, like Anderson, in Rebecca. You know the first time you meet her, she's up to no good, right? But it's, right. it's on a simmer. She's She's got the sinister nature on a simmer, and it, it, the heat just gets turned up a little bit more until – you get things boiling over at the end, and I thought it, I thought it was great fun. But I'm I'm with you on Vasikovska. It sounds like we both liked her. I think she brings a, a hard edged element to this performance that maybe is lacking in some other ones where she's cast maybe for the same reasons for her look, yeah. as you mentioned, and Hiddleston's look too. I love the line at one point where he he says something about how she looks so pale and <laughs> like right. you should talk and, right, and like know. They, they don't you know <laughs> they're see, half, him, see you back at the crypt, baby. They're yeah. both half ghosts already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh and, and he I think he's again, you know, doing something we've seen him do variation. Both of them in Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive are variations on this yeah. sort of out of time th- character. Here's my thing. I think I think Chastain it's not like she kills the movie for me. I just think this script, it's really, it's about seven movies fighting to be in the same two hours. And the people who like it, I think, can agree on that with the people who resisted it in some ways. And I just think there's an indication that it was always going to be a tough fight for Del Toro to even get this by the public in that he issued this, not just a director's statement with the production notes, but this sort of plea for people not to approach it as a horror movie. And in a way, he's talking to his own studio's marketing department because guess what? They're marketing it as a horror movie. Because Poorly, too. That trailer horror, was not well done. It's misleading, and people are going to feel bait and switched by, like, okay, where are the scares? And you could just tell. And that that was also, even though it wasn't working for me personally that that strongly, 
it was a drag to sit there watching a preview screening of Crimson Peak surrounded by a couple hundred people who just felt confused hmm. by what they had been promised and what was being delivered. And, you know, if you look at something like Pan's Labyrinth or a film of Del Toro's that is really, really wholly successful, that is not an easily described genre. That is not Pan's Labyrinth isn't isn't doesn't follow you know or conventional storytelling sure. dictates at all. Not he is he is making up his own rules, and and figuring out how he's going to kind of incorporate all these different cinematic influences and work with his designers in a way that it, and guess what you know you got a modern classic in in the in the eyes of many with something like that. I just think in this one. It never quite, it never quite gelled, and it didn't gel like that red clay, you know, kind of like with the snow and the ground, you know, the muck, and you know that's. And to be fair, I don't think it ever makes that sound. No, it that, that would have taken me right out of the movie. <laughs> um, but honestly, there, a handful of times a year, I see a film by a major director that that for me doesn't quite work, and I. Uh, I, I know that in six months, I, I just the least I owe it is another look, and and I look forward to it. All right, and then maybe on our top ten show, you can issue your apology to me at <laughs> okay, that time. Great. Crimson Peak is currently out in wide release. Whether you were confused, like the preview audience that Michael saw the film with, or disappointed, like he was, or thrilled, like I was, let us know what you thought of the movie. You can email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. Coming up, Film Spotting listeners remind us what the Cold War was really about. Sly Stallone in boxing shorts. Yeah. Plus, some thoughts on Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. Stay with us. Never let it on go all around you. We're directing you to your end, to your peace, to your I want to jump in quickly here to remind everyone that Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. Squarespace sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level with web design or coding. There's no coding required. They offer intuitive, easy-to-use tools for everybody. There's state-of-the-art technology powering the site that will ensure security and stability. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and also some of the most respected brands in the world. They're offering a free domain if you sign up for a year. You can start your free trial site today at Squarespace. There's no credit card required. Just go to squarespace.com. When you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM, F-I-L-M, to get a special offer on your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of Spotting. Thank you. 
she is the brightest and most innovative. The best campaign strategist in the game. Responsible for the greatest political upset in history. You're a fighter, Jane. I'm giving you another shot at the title. It's a presidential campaign in South America. Fragile democracy, economy in real trouble. Our candidate is considered arrogant and out of touch with people's lives. How far are you behind? 28 points. An arrogant and out-of-touch politician? Unimaginable. Welcome back to Film Spotting with the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. I'm Josh Larson. Part of the trailer there from the new film, Our Brand is Crisis. It stars Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton. Opens nationwide in a couple of weeks. Not sure yet if we're going to get to a review of it here on the show. But what interested Adam and I in the film is the director, David Gordon Green. Now, this is a political satire set in Bolivia, which seems unusual subject matter for a Green film. But really these days, it's hard to put a finger on just what a David Gordon Green film is. He is, however, the subject of this week's poll question. We've got him in a film spotting deathmatch against one of his peers. That's in a bit. But first. I came here tonight. I didn't know what to expect. I've seen a lot of people hating me, and I didn't know what to feel about that, so I guess I didn't like you much none either. During this fight, I've seen a lot of changing. The way you felt about me, in the way I felt about you. In here, there were two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better than 20 million. And that, young people of Film Spotting Nation, is how the Cold War finally came to an end. Sylvester Stallone there is Rocky Balboa in Rocky IV. Appropriately, the long-shot winner in our Dr. Strangelove Memorial poll question asking you to name your favorite Cold War movie. That montage of Rocky training for this poll question was quite impressive, Michael. Thank you, thank you. The options we gave you, The Hunt for Red October, The Manchurian Candidate, Red Dawn, Rocky IV, and we also gave you the option to choose other. Michael, I'm quite distressed at the results of this poll, so will you please do the honors? <laughs> you are. You're, you're making faces over there. Uh, f- uh, favorite Cold War movie, Red Dawn at 6%. Other, 16%. And, and those answers included Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Iron Giant, and a few more we'll get to in a bit. All of which are better answers than what won this poll. I'll just okay, add. Okay, okay. The Hunt for Red October in at 19%. The Manchurian Candidate, Frankenheimer's classic, 26%. And number one with 34%, Rocky IV. I'm just going to let listener Franco Asmail comment for me. Of course Rocky IV is winning, he says. So is Donald Trump. (laughs) Here's Blake from Idaho. I first went with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but then switched my vote to Rocky IV. Sure, Tinker Tailor is the better film and has some things to say about honor and identity, but its labyrinthine plot makes it easy to forget, whereas Rocky IV has stuck with me. Well, you know, you never, you, no one ever accused that plot of being labyrinthine. So. <laughs> Every gloriously hammy and downright stupid moment, Rocky IV took the Rocky formula and went to 11. It remains fist-pumping, hilarious, and most importantly, American. Sorry, Blake, I remain unconvinced. Nick Bowl in Seattle said, Red Dawn has about as much of a chance of success here as the Soviet strategy of sneaking up on us through Alaska, but I love it. 
The Manchurian Candidate is the better-made film, but it doesn't pack the same punch. Red October is really just a submarine movie. Rocky is really just a boxing movie. The Cold War is just a backdrop, a MacGuffin to provide some motivation. Red Dawn is the Cold War made hot, so bold, so exciting, (laughs) so ridiculous, so Swayze. It made me root for America, made me want to win. Some might make a pick that explores the nuances of the Cold War or asks us to ponder its ramifications. The only room for gray in my Cold War is Jennifer Gray. Give me good, bad, and kids shooting RPGs at Russian tanks any day. Wolverines. Kit LaRue says, I had to go for Miracle. My favorite movies are those that play out their themes via proxies. The supernatural as a proxy for the psychological. The physical struggle as proxy for the inner struggle. Hockey as a proxy for war. Why not? This film drips with crying bald eagles and star-spangled banners, but the patriotism is so sincere and deeply felt that it makes me shed a Canadian tear or two every time. All right, another vote here from Alyssa Myers in Arlington, Virginia. Failsafe is my immediate and uncontested choice for this poll. The day my 10th grade history teacher had us watch that film was a pivotal moment in my life, the first in a series of events that steered me towards studying international relations. The way the film commodifies human life is profound. The tension and grief wound around the sterile words of diplomatic exchange is heart-wrenching. Obviously, I can't pretend to objectively judge a film that impacted me so deeply, but the enduring sound of the phone line boiling down to a whistle is just good cinema, emotional connection or not. It would be interesting to know the ages of voters for this poll, just to see whether there's a difference in the choices of listeners who lived through the Cold War and those like me who were born too late for it and so don't have any first-hand memories. Alyssa's right on it there, and I think a lot of what certainly what went into my top five for the Cold War movies, it's all about um, about when you saw it, at what age, at you know, and 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 I'm, I'm it's frankly just the way to the way to go with these poll questions. I think when if it if a film had a profound impact on you at age ten, and it's got an interesting series of, you know, kind of relationships with your own life as you got older, that's that's saying something. So that explains Rocky Four. Exactly. That's what a lot of people. Felix Korch in Germany says, I have to go in a completely different direction. All these movies, Dr. Strangelove excluded, are nearly about some fringe event that escalates the Cold War. But any number of silly things could have triggered the Cold War to go hot. What I find interesting is the psychology behind the Cold War, the concept of mutually assured destruction and the fear driving men to actions that are objectively bad for everybody involved. The way good intentions and a will to protect your own could bring about catastrophic results. For that reason, I choose Watchmen. Hmm. It is, for me, the most honest and most uncompromising movie about the human flaws and human fear that brought the world to the brink of destruction. I like that, Felix, one I considered for my top five list. Finally here... Josh Ashen Miller in L.A. says, I voted for 13 days because the filmmaker so defiantly refused to lecture to the audience. It did not stop for some character to say, wait, I'm new here. Explain to me again why we don't trust Adlai Stevenson to stand up to the Soviets at the U.N. Much has been written about the Kennedy's macho approach to the Cold War, a deliberate contrast to Stevenson's public image as a negotiator, read appeaser. The film nails it. The film is also as good an argument for civilian control of the military as I've seen on screen, especially when Dylan Baker's Robert McNamara goes eyeball to eyeball with a gung-ho U.S. Navy admiral who's channeling the spirit of John Paul Jones. What a great idea for a triple feature. 13 Days, followed by Path to War with Alec Baldwin, born to portray McNamara, and directed by the Manchurian candidates John Frankenheimer, followed by Errol Morris's stunning nonfiction portrayal of McNamara in The Fog of War. An evening of cold, blue-eyed stares through rimless spectacles. (laughs) Apropos of nothing, Josh says, the release of Crimson Peak and Sicario gives me a great idea. 
Del Toro Deathmatch, Benicio versus Guillermo. Hmm. What do you say, Michael? You've got to pick one or the other. Uh, Benicio Del Toro versus Guillermo. I throw, if you're throwing uh, Eastwood's Gran Torino, then you got a three-way there. That is, I, don't <laughs> I don't know if that actually works it's just, out. It's just for pointless wordplay. It bought wordplay. you a few seconds yeah. to, to make your decision on this yeah. huge question. <laughs> to, to <laughs> And we're at this is I I, I vote apples. Uh, no, oh I mean goodness. you know actor versus director. That's 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 an, unfair. That's an evil death match right there. Yeah. Okay, well you need both. We, the farmer we, and the common should be friends, Josh. We specialize in evil death matches here on Film Spotting. So this week's poll question is: as we mentioned earlier, a kind of random director death match, and not unfortunately a random actor director who shares surname death match. <laughs> it's a preview of sorts to the types of matchups we might see next March with the return of Film Spotting Madness. That's when we're going to focus on directors. In this okay, not entirely random director deathmatch, we've got David Gordon Green up against another film spotting favorite, Jeff Nichols. He of Take Shelter, Mud, and the long-awaited, much-delayed Midnight Special, which is due next year, sometime we think and hope. Now, despite being more or less the same age, which is one of the reasons we paired them up, David Gordon Green's filmography goes back a bit further than Nichols. His debut was the critically adored George Washington in 2000. Nichols' debut, Shotgun Stories, with Michael Shannon, didn't come out till 2007. Green's also been a lot more productive, and it's fair to say uneven than Nichols. He's got 11 future credits. Nichols only has four. But with Green's recent stuff like Joe with Nicolas Cage or his 2007 film Snow Angels, that's one you really like. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah right, very Michael? strong. Very strong. He and Nichols have worked on similar turf, though we are still patiently awaiting Jeff Nichols' stoner comedy about a medieval babysitter, whatever it is Green sometimes <laughs> Some does. Some are awaiting more, more patiently than others. <laughs> so there you go. Film Spotty Nation. David Gordon Green versus Jeff Nichols. Here's how we think about these things. Only one of them goes on to direct. Another day. Michael, don't weasel your way out of this one. You've got to choose now. Which is it going to be, David Gordon Green or Jeff Nichols? Uh, Jeff Nichols. All right. I think I'm with you. Yeah. I think I'm with you. And it probably is unfair because yeah, it's very close. There, there's very so close. many of those titles of David Gordon Green that didn't work or I'm uh, could, uh, could we change this from a death match to an injury match? I mean, I just I don't, I don't want to kill off. I don't want to kill David Gordon Green you're off. Gonna, you're going to have to wait until Adam comes back for okay. that. <laughs> All right, listeners. We want to hear some feedback from you when you vote in this poll. If you leave that feedback, please also let us know where you're listening from. They've got our guy, our spy pilot. They've got their spy. We want you to negotiate the swap. I'm an insurance lawyer. Are you good at what you do? This will be a first for the both of us. You should be careful. Do you know how people will look at us? The family of a man trying to free a traitor? Every person matters. Why are we hanging him? He's a spy! We need to know what the Russian was telling you. We're not having this conversation. Don't go Boy Scout on me. We don't have a rule book here. We call it the Constitution, and that's what makes us Americans. Busy weekend, Michael, for major studio releases. Steve Jobs, I saw at a preview screening last week. We had unwisely, I think, chosen that as our main review last week. I did not enjoy it very much. You didn't like it? Oh, you're with me on that. Yeah, yeah. And just, Adam? Adam, was... Adam liked it. Adam liked it. So we yeah. uh, we split on that one, as you and I split on uh, Crimson Peak. A lot of splits lately. So I saw Steve Jobs. Then I went to see Crimson Peak right on Friday when it opened. That's the one I'd been anticipating most of all over the weekend. And also Bridge of Spies. The Spielberg film, a new Spielberg film You're is the going third to the show, one, baby. the third priority, you know, on a weekend. That <laughs> yeah. is a big weekend. Yeah. So, you know, this Cold War set film, the inspiration for our top five this week, Cold War movies, which follows uh, the true 
story or based on fact story of an insurance lawyer in 1957, New York City, who gets embroiled in an espionage plot. It's a little bit of Spielberg doing history again, as he's done as far back as Amistad, uh, maybe a little earlier than that, and certainly his most recent film, Lincoln. I think you were on the show with us to review Lincoln. I know we discussed it at one point or another, and I remember you being a big fan of that picture. Would you say Bridge of Spies is similarly successful in tackling American history? I mean, it's a less serious film. It's it's a, it's a less uh, a beautifully written picture because I think you don't get the kind of rhetorical flourish that Tony Kushner brought to that script. But I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Bridge of Spies. And a lot of it is just simply watching a, a master director execute beautifully a story that has, you know, frankly, one foot in Hollywood and old Hollywood movies of the time that that dealt with the Cold War era and the Red Menace scare and all the rest of the paranoia in in a very different perspective. And another foot in in something like real life and, and the real history of things. But Spielberg's not a guy who gets hung up on 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 documentary issues. You know, this is a script that was polished and revised essentially by Joel and Ethan Cohen from uh, Matt Charman's original script, and um, uh, it, it's got a, it's got kind of that hum. You get that kind of like hum of satisfaction. Uh, the, the film's just sort of all the gears clicking into place, and you know, performances like Hanks in a, absolutely in a sweet spot as this sort of regular guy. You know, very crafty insurance. Uh, attorney who, uh, improbably enough, uh, ended up becoming kind of a player in this bizarre spy-for-spy swap that actually took place between the U-2 pilot, uh, Francis Gary Powers, and the Soviet spy that was captured in New York, uh, Rudolf Abel, played by Mark Rylance, a fantastic Shakespearean actor who's performed here in Chicago and, you know, a a wonderful performer who I think a lot of people are going to be seeing for the first time in Bridge of Spies. And you know, it's it's just it's just kind of a, a pleasure to watch. And uh, in a funny way, everything a lot of people are saying about uh, Del Toro's Crimson Peak in a much subtler sort of stylistic sphere is what I got. It's what I got out of Bridge of Spies. Just kind of seeing Janusz Kaminski pour all that absolutely fraudulent-looking white light, you know, uh, down on every rain-spattered Berlin street. Um, and yet it, it's stylized just to the brink of kind of ridiculousness, but, yeah. but it doesn't go too far. And that that's the whole film. I, I just think it's, it's, it's also a patient film. It's a Spielberg, uh, in, in, in a lot of pictures, he's, he's m- much more nervous about keeping an audience interested um, by any means necessary, every second, and I think I think in this one maybe he's just getting to the age, Josh, where it's like let this story be what it is. You know, John Le Carré, you know, it's closer to Le Carré than it is to Tom Clancy, and you can't bend this thing into the movie that, frankly, the trailers for Bridge of Spies is prom. You know, they're promising a really, you know, bam pow screw tightening thriller. It's not really that kind of film, you know, but it's it what it is is a really good film of its own type. He's very comfortable. You get the sense Spielberg is very comfortable with this story and with what he wants to do on screen. And uh, I don't know if that makes people run to the theaters to hear that this is a, a movie that's just comfortably made. But I think when you see well, someone— it's better with, than that. With, I think well, it's better than but that. But with, I mean, there's not that insistence you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, where, where you can feel the gears. And I love it when he cranks the gears because he does it often better than anybody. Yeah. But there's not that insistence here. And uh, it's a very hushed film. I mean, when you yeah, talk about— the Kaminsky cinematography. You're right. There are those flourishes of <laughs> of the high wattage, but I think they're I think 
they're delicately used so they don't overpower it. And you can say the same thing of the Thomas Newman score. Yeah, that's, and, that's unusually understated oh, man, for him. I, yeah. For a while there, I was thinking, have we heard any music yet? Yeah, yeah. And then you get a little bit of it under a chase sequence, I guess you could call it, during a rainstorm. There's a couple sort of chase sequences that work really well here because of their pacing and and they're just they're tamped down but still thrilling they are and the first one we see which is basically the first 10 minutes of the picture is a direct reference i think to uh, a film that's on my top five for the cold war pit oh okay we'll talk about that in a second all right good i I thought that was a a fantastic sequence so if there if there's one main thing that held me back though is in their vision of this donovan character the hanks character so the contemporary parallel here of course when he's called in to defend this accused spy and it's sort of a perfunctory thing that his superiors have given him like we've got to make a show of giving this guy a fair trial he takes it seriously to his own danger to the danger of his family and he really wants to defend this guy so the parallel is would who would step up and do that today if say an accused terrorist was arrested argue and accused the, argue for the civil the civil liberties argument yes right? exactly yeah. and so we're supposed to read that as as a contemporary parallel i think spielberg pushes that a little hard in areas but what really was lacking from the film and i don't know if it's fair to say it's in hank's performance cuz i liked him mostly here but is the motivation behind that from day one his donvin is this Boy Scout, he's called the Boy Scout. There, there's He has no doubt. So the question of the movie is, how are we going to bend our principles when we feel afraid? Whether we feel afraid because of the Soviets in the Cold War or terrorists of some sort today. Are we going to bend on the Constitution? This guy doesn't even pause to say, maybe we should. It's not even an inner conflict for him, even when his family becomes at risk, even when Things get elevated and he gets embroiled in this other espionage plot that's very dangerous to him personally. He never pauses. And and that's, that's fine, but I would just no, like to have been shown the motivation that's behind it. That's a very good point. It. Honestly, that would, have been, that would have been fixed with the right two-minute sequence where he's where he's confronted either by his wife or somebody in his family or the, or the law firm. Alan Alda plays his boss at the law, at the law firm. You know, where it's just we, we could have spun that out a little more plausibly. I agree. And I think he is. You're right, Josh. I think he is conceived as kind of a – you know, morally righteous in a very clear-headed character in kind of the, I don't want to use Capra vein because it makes Capra's characters sound like they're all one-dimensional, which they're not necessarily, but they're certainly more paragon. Paragons they can work of, as symbols. Yeah, and, and I think that's Spielberg's and maybe the script's answer of, of to the question of how how can we... Um, how can we kind of find our bearings uh, it, uh, when we're telling a story uh, at this very confusing and um, paranoid time when, um, like just after 9-11 here, uh, you know, we're you know, arguing for civil liberties for people considered you know, enemies of the state or terrorists, you know, is not a popular thing. And some people just, yeah, would think, what are you, crazy? Um, and the film is... Pretty subtle, I'd say. I, I don't think it's as on the nose as, as uh, you know, with things like the Guantanamo Bay parallels or things like that, as, as maybe you're implying. But uh, it's it's in there if you want it. You know, mm-hmm. just just like a film like as different as it is, Spielberg's Minority Report. You can read that film 
you know, a little bit in the shadows as well. Is, yes. is it embracing this surveillance and technology or is it really a damning critique? Well, it's really neither. It's a little of both. It's and, stickier, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there's a little stickiness anyway in Bridge of Spies. A little stickiness. All right. Well, Bridge of Spies is currently out in wide release. If you agree or disagree with our takes, email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. And when we come back, Josh and I look back fondly on all the times Russia almost nuked us and vice versa. The top five Cold War movies are next. Stay with us. It's been days, it's been months Since the darkness covered us In the night, it feels like The snow will bury us I don't want to be cold I just don't want to be another chore Now some wounded birds to care for An unrolled job That's the last thing I'd want to do Though the times are changing Don't matter much for us Though I've been and cruel I still can taste the rust I don't want to be cold No, I just don't want to be another chore Hey, I'm Ty Sheridan. And I'm David Gordon Green, the director of the film Joe, and we're here on Film Spotting. Welcome back to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. The Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips is in for Adam this week, and it's top five time. This week, we take our inspiration from Spielberg's Bridge of Spies for our top five Cold War movies. Before we get to our list, Michael, I want to start with an email we got on this subject from listener Dion in East Lansing, Michigan. Her pick for favorite Cold War movie, it was one I'd never heard of. And she says, hi, guys, I voted for On the Beach, starring Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner for favorite Cold War film. For those who don't know this movie, it takes place in Australia following a global nuclear war, which has wiped out the entire population of the Northern Hemisphere. Now the Australians are waiting their turn, which will come when the seasons change and the radiation is carried into the Southern Hemisphere. Ava Gardner plays an Australian and Gregory Peck is the commander of an American submarine which so far has missed exposure to radiation. The movie is so sad. It captures the helplessness and hopelessness of a people who know that the future brings no future at all. I saw it for the first time over 40 years ago and never forgot it. I saw it again a few months ago. It's a little hokey by today's standards, but I still cried when they played Waltzing Matilda at the end. So this is something of your specialty, Michael, to make a pick of a movie that I had never heard of is On the Beach going to make your list? Is a movie you're fa- <laughs> no, it's is it, are you familiar no, with it? No, it's a Stanley Kramer uh, uh, project, which means it's got, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't quite have the same feeling for it that Dion does, but um, uh, in 1959, it, it certainly had nerve. It was might have been the first studio picture with A-list stars that depicted that sort of seriously end-of-the-world scenario. Okay. And I came at it a completely different way because I was a Fred Astaire freak and, oh, a rare dramatic role where he plays this kind of cynical um, uh, race car driver who's one of the supporting characters in that. Uh, it's got the courage of its convictions like so much of what Stanley Kramer did and it's got so little filmmaking uh, or dramatic nuance that you know Kramer is just not a guy I'm ever going to put in any pantheon. But it certainly cast a chill on 1959 audiences and a lot of people did think it was 
in some ways an important picture. Now it's hard for me to take it seriously beyond that, but um, but it's a good it's a good pick because it is not remembered today. Okay, well, we'll see what movies did make your list before we get to that. Let's talk a little bit of criteria. I've sort of overdone the criteria on my last few lists, uh, went a little at them and got really into it and made <laughs> definitions and set aside categories. So I'm going to take a fairly straightforward approach this time. Just the best movies that are either directly about or evoke the Cold War era. Did it get any more complicated than that for you, Michael? Uh, I, I chose Hot War pictures, not cold. So well, I, you I went wanted, way in another direction. I wanted to broaden. It. Uh, no, you know, I mean, my, my own my own list ended up being like they should be. Frankly, personal. A lot of films that I saw when I was younger and had a big impact on me, and I think you know, hold up beautifully. And they tend to gravitate to a very specific time too. Not not much. I mean, I, look, I enjoyed Red Dawn like all the other idiots out there uh, in its way, and uh, films like Invasion USA, which I happily reviewed, you know, in my twenties for City Pages and Minneapolis. And I mean, enjoyably terrible are movies like that and Rocky Four, which mysteriously <laughs> topped your I'm just, poll. I'm just going to keep letting you go on. I, I heard idiots. I heard uh, uh, enjoyably terrible. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm one of them. Okay. I'm one of them. But. Uh, <laughs> uh, those those love to hate it or hate to love it movies did not make my list. Okay. I, actually, I actually respect all five of my picks. Okay. With that, you're number five. <laughs> my number five is Kiss Me Deadly, Robert Aldrich, 1955. Okay. This is, I suppose, obliquely a Cold War film, although it was certainly made at the height of Cold War tensions and uh, the Red Scare hysteria in America. This is Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer on screen in his most unpleasant, most vicious incarnation ever. Ralph Meeker plays him. And this is the film, Josh, that has the glowing radioactive box stuck away in a locker that is, you know, like glowing bright light. And and so many filmmakers, Tarantino on down, have riffed on that image of this sort of what they call the great what's it in the movie. Like, what mm-hmm. is this thing? And are the Russians somehow involved is kind of the implication. And and the film, it, it, it's basically an atomic bomb in a locker, you know, stuck away. And this is, the, this is the MacGuffin, I guess, if you want to pull one from Hitchcock, that everybody's after that gets the plot kind of um, going and, and keeps it going. But uh, I, Josh, I don't know if there's a more twisted, perverse, nasty Cold War detective picture ever made and uh, that that film it, I, I'm always intrigued Josh by films that do not find an audience in their day where they, they are simply too repellent for the audience of the day even though they seem to have all the commercial hooks right Mike Hammer huge pop, hugely popular you know in Pulp Fiction you know selling millions of copies of it but somehow this version of it so cynical so despicable and such a kind of a such a such a kind of seething with atmosphere that talk about a film that has improved every decade we've we've been around and it's just now it just seems like one of the bravest commercial projects I've ever seen because it doesn't even care a lick if you don't if you don't hate if you just don't hate this guy at the center of it who's nominally the hero you know it's it's a very subversive picture. I picked up a girl. If she hadn't gotten in my way, I wouldn't have stopped. She must be connected with something big. Mike, why don't you tell us what you know? And step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Have you seen it ever? I was just going to say it sounds great. Oh, no, you got to check I it out. Not seen. I know, 
I know it's not uh, rare or underseen at all. I, I've definitely read a lot about it and have always meant to catch up with it. So more motivation now. For check it out. Check it out. To do that. At number five, I have The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. This is the 1965 John Le Carre adaptation from director Martin Ritt. Imagine if someone took the flashy, sexy spy film, so, you know, a Bond film, essentially, and then wrung it out like a towel (laughs) until all the flashiness, all the sexiness was squeezed out of it. That's sort of what we have here. And there's a line in the movie that captures that. One of the characters describes the spies this way. They're men playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. <laughs> rotten, that's, that's the key word, I think, for this film. A bedraggled Richard Burton stars as a British agent who's pulled out of Germany, and he's given this desk job. It's all to set him up as a potentially disgruntled spy who can then be dangled in front of the East Germans as a double agent. What rules are you playing? There's only one rule, expediency. Munt gives London what it needs, so Fiedler dies and Munt lives. It was a foul, foul operation, but it paid off. Who for? What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Now, Burton was my number one spy on episode 409. He's so anti-spy compared to the likes of James Bond or, say, someone like Cary Grant and Notorious as well. Burton drinks a lot in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, but it's not because it's part of his image or his marketing campaign or anything like that. It's because he's genuinely that disillusioned with his place in the world and, and, you know, where the world is Mm. itself. I, I think... Bridge of Spies captures a little bit of this or wants to, but but does it with a happy ending if that's possible. So I, I see some connections right. between these two, right, but right, right. this is the real, Lake, this is Lake, the uh, rotten one. Right. That's, that's a good point. Lake Hooray is a much more cynical and kind of jaundiced worldview than Spielberg ever will. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What'd you have at number four? Uh, my number four is Pick Up on South Street, 1953 from Samuel Fuller. It's uh, It's a really great, pungent little picture with Richard Woodmark playing a pickpocket who inadvertently steals some microfilm uh, with some government secrets and you got you got uh, you got communist agents running around New York you got Woodmark caught between the commies who want to get him for this thing he's inadvertently purloined and uh, you know he's in love with this B girl played by Jean Peters who he meets on the subway and lifts her wallet. And I'll tell you, this is this is the scene I mentioned earlier, the first scene in Bridge of Spies where we have this in the subway, very kind of stealthy subway chase, which is kind of a medium speed subway chase because sure. the because the, the FBI agents have to kind of stay a little bit out of sight of the of the Rylance character. Um, and the first couple minutes uh, is this wordless. Sequence of pure cinema in Pickup on South Street, where Widmark and Gene Peters and these uh, the FBI agents uh, are all watching this transaction take place because the FBI agents are just about to put the pinch on the woman they know has the microfilm, but Widmark comes along as the pickpocket and just his luck, you know, takes it. And it's it's all done with glances and and really shrewd editing. And it's also one of the most carnal sequences you've ever seen in a movie like this just because of the looks she's giving Widmark. It, it's fascinating. And the whole film is fascinating because even though Widmark in the end is this kind of interesting anti-hero who does do the right thing and stand up, you know, he stands up against the communists and for America. He's got a lot of lines in this picture where the FBI agents are trying to put 
the squeeze on him and get him more involved with this. And, and Widmark has lines like, you're trying awful hard with all this patriotic eyewash. And there's a lot of stuff that Samuel Fuller clearly was sort of aiming directly at this Joe McCarthy, HUAC sort of paranoia. Why don't you haul that girl down here to identify me? Is my word against hers? No. It's your word against mine. I saw you close her purse. All right, so it's your word. But you got a nail of goods on me, mister, and I'm clean. Go ahead, fan me. Come on, give me the word. That film you stole had government information on it. Classified. We've been following this girl for months. And just as we were about to grab a top red agent receiving the film from her, you broke up the ball game. Now, can't you see how important this is? We just want your cooperation, and the charges against you will be dropped. Isn't that right, Captain? You know, I'd like to make this rap stick, but what he's got to do is more important. Well, you boys are talking in the wrong corner. I'm just a guy keeping my hands in my own pockets. If you refuse to cooperate, you'll be as guilty as the traitors that gave Stalin the A-bomb. Are you waving the flag at me? I know something in our side you should give. The film has is, is got a lot of these kind of contradictions and instabilities to it, but it, it really is. And Thelma Ritter, one of my great favorite character actresses, mm-hmm. got, um, uh, got an Oscar nomination for her performance in this. It's, it's really juicy, and if you've never seen it, you should check it out. If you, and if you're intrigued at all with the first 10 minutes of Bridge of Spies, which most people are once they see the picture, um, uh, go back and see Pickup to see the see where it came from. I think if the Hanks character in Bridge of Spies had been even just a little bit pricklier, like this I agree. Richard no, Widmark I agree. character, I think that's a flaw. it might have been a little that more interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take us in a little bit of a different direction for my number four. I needed a science fiction pick for this list. I mean, so many worked as parables or echoes of Cold War tensions, I should say, in the 50s and 60s. So I considered, and maybe we'll get to some of these on your list, Michael, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I thought about them. I really wanted oh, yeah, to talk the, the ants, about yeah. giant ants with you. I, I know you would have appreciated that. I like that, that film. <laughs> That's really, though, I think more about uh, nuclear fears maybe than Cold War One. So I left that off and decided to go with 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, great film. This is where Michael Rennie's Klaatu visits Earth along with his deadly robot Gort to warn the nations to stop their warring ways. Now, again, another Bridge of Spies reference here. It gets a little preachy, I think. Klaatu brings the fire. Gort brings the brimstone. But there are other places where the movie is pretty subtle. And I think you could say the same Bridge of Spies. So there's uh, different variations (laughs) there. Klaatu disguises himself at one point as a human. And he gets interviewed by a reporter. And the reporter is trying to egg him on, asking him if he's fearful because of the alien invasion to get a, a big reaction. And when he doesn't respond with the proper amount of hysteria, the reporter pretty much ignores him and moves on looking for someone who will. So I think that's just this nice little dig in there at the sort of fostered paranoia yep. of the Cold War era. And and also, I think it's a timely comment on uh, the media's penchant to employ scare tactics when it comes to American fear today. That's a good way to put it. And it's a very rich film, but it's it's, it's not ambiguous in its viewpoint. It's actually very just like, calm down. Don't it's not it's not all about weapons, you know, and it's not all about, you know, of first strike and 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 shock and awe and the rest of it. That's that's kind of what the director Robert Wise is is uh, I think casting this as. And I mean, as scary as every note of Bernard Herrmann's music is in that film, the film is really telling you something else. You know, right? Just, yeah, it's okay. that's true. It's okay. It's the right. theremin, right? Let's just think a second here. Yeah. And in fact, my number three kind of goes in the same direction as yours. And you mentioned it: Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This is the Don Siegel version from 1956 where we have an alien invasion, uh, which, again, could stand in for, um, you know, the, the Soviet infiltration of our, of our ideology. 
genealogy or maybe not if you don't want to read it that way. But there you are in Santa Mira, California, and suddenly all your neighbors are looking a little medicated. <laughs> you know, they're a little – they're calm. They're calm. A little too calm, right? They're calm. They're, they're productive members of society, but it's just not a society you want to be in. They're pod people because, of course, their bodies have been, you know, inhabited by these these alien beings. and. You know, uh, so much for the emotional mood swings. But it, it, it's a really crafty film, Josh, because you can read this film two ways or right down the middle if you like. You can read it as a satire on Red Menace hysteria or you can read it much more on the surface like this is just like the communists trying to come to our shores. And, you know, I mean, for, for years in Hollywood there, Josh, every other film – had had secret communist Soviet agents and spies running around undetected. You know, I mean, it's it's we forget what what movie going was like back then, and of course we were born afterward. But but th- this is a film that responded to all that, but kind of took it to another level. And I love the last moment where he's just basically yelling, Kevin McCarthy's at the at the camera saying, "You're next," you know, <laughs> you know, so you commie, you know, and whatever. But I it's. It's a little bit funny. It's a little bit frightening. It's a big honking metaphor that absolutely holds up, and you can read it at least two different ways. I love it. Yeah, I like it quite a bit, too. At number three, I have the least direct Cold War film on my list, but I like how this one evokes uh, the emotional chill of that era. It's Wings of Desire, Hmm. Wim Wenders' 1987 art film. This is set in Berlin not long before the fall of the wall, and it follows a handful of angels who wander the city in trench coats. They're unseen by the humans they observe. They can hear people's anxious thoughts, but they aren't really able to intervene, at least not directly, or maybe you get the sense not as much as they wish they could. This sort of existential disconnection, uh, I think, nicely echoes the reality of a city, and you could say at that time maybe a world that was divided by these tensions between East and West in the wake of World War II, and it, you know one that persisted for decades all the way into the 1980s. Wings of Desire, I think it, it feels the burden and the exhaustion maybe more so mm. of those years of this state of tension that had been ongoing. There's a real aching to it, a, a yearning for the thaw that would end up coming just a few years after the movie came out. Yeah, that's a great pick. That's a great pick because you're really talking about the very almost almost right to the very end of the, of, right of, at the of, end of how we define yeah. the Cold War era. Right. Yeah. What'd you have at number two, Michael? My number two is uh, a famous film, a famous film, Doctor Strangelove. Uh, 1964, the same year as Failsafe. And and for everybody who's crazy about the Kubrick film, Dr. Strangelove, and who've seen it several times and just, you know, quoted endlessly. and So quotable. Yeah, all the rest of it. I think it's instructive to see Failsafe, which came out the same year and treated many of the same themes in a much more, of course, sober, straight-ahead, non-ironic fashion. And and that's a pretty good film, Failsafe. And and it's something it's something I would consider maybe even if it was a top ten. But mm, we've talked about Kubrick in various circumstances here. I just think Doctor Strangelove comes right in the middle of his most fruitful period because the, all the films he made between '56, The Killing, and 2001 and 1968 are, I think, masterworks of a type, and, and they're, they tend to be different types. And Strange Love is just, uh, it's not just a showcase for what Sellers can do and what George C. Scott can do. And, and talk about mugging. I mean, George C. Scott, it's one of the broadest, successful comic performances ever. <laughs> um, but it marked a turning point, I think, Josh, when, when Kubrick killed off 
the planet at the end of Strange Love. Something did change, I think, in American popular culture. Hmm. We we could joke about everything, and there were a lot of death cackles, and a lot there was just there was a lot of nervous laughter with the Cold War, and the arms escalation, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and all the rest of it. It was it was a, those were the times. I mean. But but somehow something changed once you wipe out the planet and start over, and maybe that film was what paved the way for our American '60s more than more than any other film. So, Doctor Strange Love. A lot of listeners assumed we were just going to anoint this the Strange Love Memorial List. That's what we named our poll because we knew people would vote for it. There, <laughs> it's my easily. number two. It's my number two. It's your number two, and uh, completely understand it. And it's an honorable mention for me. The reason it's it's not on my list is I I don't rank it as highly as some other Kubrick films simply because as funny as it is. It's smarter than it is funny, and there's a sense where it's sort of having the smartest kid in the room tell you a joke rather than the funniest kid in the room, if that makes any I, no, sense. I, I like that distinction. So, yeah. I, so I, and I, I'm not saying it's not funny. It uh, is, yeah, um, and but, its quotability makes it endure. So I, I, I like the film quite a bit, but couldn't quite right. put it on my list for I, that I reason. I think one reason that – I mean, I, I love it in a lot of ways, but it's you – know, Kubrick has an extremely heavy sense of humor. Yeah, that's, and, that's and it's, a good way to and put it, it's, too. And, he's, and his rhythm is a little odd in that picture because I, I, I'm not saying I would want to have anybody else direct that script but uh, because I think you'd lose so much else in other ways. Sure. But, but there's some, it, there is something a little clenched and a little uh, de- deliberate about the pacing in some scenes, especially the ones with uh, Buck Turgeson and, and you know, the George C. Scott. They could and might – profitably, you know, kind of percolate a little better under maybe a different director. I don't know. It'd be interesting to, to throw that script to somebody else and see what kind of movie they would come up with. But it's too late. He made it. He made it. It's on your list. Yeah. Absolutely deserves to be there. My number two is The Iron Giant. Now, like mm. most... You don't like the Iron Giant, but uh, you know, let's Whoa. hear let's hear your passionate defense. Michael. Th- this is going to be a problem. Right. I think, like most good family films, Brad Bird's The Iron Giant is is timeless, but it's also such a treasure because of its specificity, and that's because it's grounded in this Cold War era and the paranoia. Of that era. It's set in 1950s Maine, where an imaginative boy befriends this gargantuan robot that falls from outer space. Now, this doesn't go over well with the government, of course, so we get this delightful variation on the Frankenstein or King Kong or even E.T. myth of the misunderstood monster. Again, though, there are specific reasons for this monster to be misunderstood, and they're tied to Cold War details and fears. You know, Hogarth, we live in a strange and wondrous time. The atomic age. But there's a dark side to progress, Hogarth. Ever hear of Sputnik? Yeah, the first satellite in space. Foreign satellite, Hogarth. And all that that implies. Even now, it orbits overhead. Boop. Watching us. We can't see it, but it's there. Much like that giant thing in the woods. We don't know what it is or what it can do. I don't feel safe, Hogarth. Do you? I'm glad I brought back up to this since I see you're opposing me on this, Michael. (laughs) Writing for the Iron Giant for the AV Club in 2009, friend of the show Scott Tobias said this. Kids don't need to know a thing about the arms race, beatniks, or duck and cover educational propaganda to grasp the simple themes of peace and friendship at the film's heart. But those elements are there for their parents. Rarely does family entertainment work several steps up the generational ladder. Hmm. So I think he's right on. It's one of those movies stands the test of time, even though it's firmly rooted in a specific one. What could you possibly have 
against the Iron Giant? Uh, it's uh, well, I'm a communist, and <laughs> he's I'm he's not, out. I'm not, <laughs> Finally, we broke <laughs> him after many many guest appearances under record. the glaring light. I, I like it fine. I, I, I you know what? I didn't see the Iron Giant until the other week when they when I saw the remastered yeah, there's version and re release. Yeah, right. with 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 you know a slightly kind of amped up sound track and a few other tweaks, but it's it's the same film. Um, Essentially, so that was really the first time you saw the first time, it. Okay. and uh, you know maybe I'm maybe I'm just working off its own reputation, but uh, I I just found it, you know, moderately funny, moderately clever, and uh, that's it. Can can <laughs> can we at least say you moderately approve? Uh, I moderately disapprove. Oh my goodness! Okay, my, I'm, but it's moderate. Let's just let's just move on to your okay, number one. My, my number one. Okay, my number one is I think your number one. Is it the Manchurian Candidate? Nice. God. It's got to be, right? Yes. All right. I, okay. Okay. No, you're uh, totally personal. I saw this film on television when I was probably nine or ten, and I had never seen- That would seen, freak me out. And they, 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 in retrospect, I'm surprised they didn't edit the violence in that, in that brainwashing sequence a little bit, but I don't think they did, where you have this crazy uh, uh, intercutting between the the, the garden party mm-hmm. and the and the North Korean or maybe they um, did I mean one of the things about this film is you don't remember what you saw yeah because yeah, yeah. It, it works that uh, way uh, well I, I mean I it just th- threw me out of my life practically and it just and I was just so gripped by it and yet there was such a peculiar sense of humor I was also kind of responding to and I mean the non sequiturs in the in the first scene between Janet Lee and Frank Sinatra, when they meet on the train, and, mm-hmm. and he's and and we're kind of just getting the plot where we're, we have to figure out how do we get this Lawrence Harvey character, you know, back to reality and uh, out of the out of the hands of the of the enemy. Uh, uh, I mean, I, that's the strangest romantic dialogue ever written. I mean, Frankenheimer, the direct John Frankenheimer, the director. Talk about a film that is trying a very, very risky mixture of satirizing the far left and satirizing the far right and sort of mixing up every conspiracy theory you can imagine. I mean, that that film just keeps getting stranger and stranger and more gripping. And every influential movie about the Cold War, Josh, risks becoming passe because so many other films come along and pull variations on, and I'm not just talking about remakes, but um, but we, we've seen a lot of the basic building blocks. We've seen climaxes like the assassination attempt that ends, and not just the attempt, but uh, that ends Manchurian Candidate. Which, again, when I was a kid, I just was completely enthralled by this. But that's the film that hits. It's it's just after the peak of the Cold War hysteria. I think early early '60s, and it's something that. I run into people who haven't seen it or haven't seen it for a long time. And I, I just think that if, if you don't treasure that one and what what a truly idiosyncratic commercial thriller can, can achieve, you know, that that's it. That's the one I point to. Manchurian Candidate, also my number one. I didn't see it when I was young as you were when you saw it. I don't know that I would have wanted to. But what I think what I would have liked is to have seen it at the time of its release. I mean, can you imagine – how jarring it would have been then. It's, it was right in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was not long before the assassination of JFK. And here's this heightened, surreal, freaky, feverish political thriller about communist plots. And, and like you said, the, the right-wing hysteria, political assassinations. It just it had to be 
too timely for comfort when it initially came out. Just a little bit of plot here for those who haven't seen it. Frank Sinatra is this Korean war vet who's haunted by these dreams of being brainwashed during his tour of duty, and he tracks down his fellow veterans, including this robotic war hero played by Lawrence Harvey. And another these, another, another completely unsympathetic yes. character that is typically sympathetic. Yes, you know? yeah, very yeah. much so. And Harvey has this domineering, politically ambitious mother played by uh, venomous Angela Lansbury. <laughs> she was on my uh, top five movie spies list, too, on episode 409. I just love her in this. How would you see her? They live in New York. I'm getting a job in New York. You have your army service. Next spring. I might be dead by next spring. Raymond, if we were at war and you were suddenly to become infatuated with the daughter of a Russian agent, wouldn't you expect me to come to you and object and beg you to stop the entire thing before it was too late? Well, we are at war. It's a cold war. But it will get worse and worse until every man, woman and child in this country will have to stand up and be counted say whether they are on the side of right and freedom or on the side of the Thomas Jordans of this country. Now, Bosley Crowther is not a critic I especially admire, and he's also one who failed to appreciate the movie. No, when it first really? Came I haven't out. read that. Oh, yeah, the yeah, idiot but, for the New York Times. Back yeah. then. He was. He, he killed off more ambitious... I know. Uh, I, know. I, I really hate to quote him, but I, I think he gave a glimpse as to how the movie was received in 1962 in his Times review. He said, with the air full of international tension, the Manchurian candidate pops up with a rash supposition that could serve to scare some viewers half to death. That is, if they should be dupes enough to believe it, which we solemnly trust they won't. So, mm-hmm. yes, I agree. Not the go-to critic for me, but I think that gives us some sense of um, of the, the paranoia, if not hysteria, that may have been circling in the air somewhat. And then you drop a movie like this into the middle of that. Had to be my number one. Right. No, it's great. It's just terrific work. And, and Frankenheimer does such astute work with every actor. I mean, he learned so much about working with actors in his live television days in the 50s. And, and there's not a single role you'd cast differently. And it's certainly one of Sinatra's two or three best performances. And it's got nerves of steel, that picture. And uh, it, it's, um, it's I've seen it every 10 years or so. I don't want to – it's not a picture I want to go back to very often because – um, there are there are films that in your life if you see them and you love them at a certain age and you want to you, you want to go back now and then but you don't you don't want to kind of lose what you had with it you know and it's never the movie's fault if you fall out of love with the movie do you know what I mean good rule of <laughs> thumb I, I want to keep this one uh, keep this one close those are our top five Cold War movies Michael did you have any honorable mentions you wanted to throw out there well I do love Lake Hare as a writer John Lake Hare and I I love really both versions of Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy the miniseries with Alec Guinness and the condensed, compressed, you know, theatrical version with Gary Oldman more recently, um, uh, both terrific. If you want to see an enjoyably terrible movie made right at the height, at the, or at the beginning kind of the, of the serious Cold War hysteria, check out Leo McCary's My Son John. This is a film starring Robert Walker, who had just come off Strangers on a Train for Hitchcock, uh, where he plays a State Department employee, where his communist sympathies and sneering intellectual arrogance are, are apparently going unnoticed. His mother, who's a God-fearing Christian played by Helen Hayes, eventually finds out the truth about her son John. And it's, it's, the movie gets nuttier and more hysterical as it goes. And it was a success of the time, and it, it really 
reads today like like the studio was truly in the employ and the uh, of of the State Department itself and making this stirring piece of anti-communist nonsense. You know, <laughs> but it's it's check it out. It's 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 a movie that really is kind of. It, it's made with enough skill that it actually makes it more insidious. You know what I mean? Enjoyably terrible. Sounds like it should have been one of our poll options this week for favorite Cold War movies. All right. So a couple of honorable mentions here. I thought about The Third Man. I thought about K-19, The Widowmaker, Catherine Bigelow action uh, film. That's uh, yeah, pretty good. Okay. Pretty good. Yeah. Good Night and Good Luck counts as well. Sure, a lot sure. of listeners suggested Goodbye Lenin, film from maybe five, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And Top Secret. The Zucker, <laughs> Zucker. Abraham Zucker fun. with That's Val fun. Kilmer doing his Elvis. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> can maybe throw that one on there. So again, those are our top five Cold War movies. We want to hear your picks. Email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. Or you can leave Film Spotting a voicemail, 312-264-0744. On Twitter, you can find us at Larson on Film. That's Josh. And at Phillips Tribune, that's me. But if you have anything really nasty to say, save it for at Film Spotting. That is Adam Kempinar. You can also find Film Spotting at Facebook.com slash Film Spotting. Over at FilmSpotting.net, we have 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, top fives. All of that is in the show archives. While you're there, take a moment, vote in the current Film Spotting poll. It's our random director deathmatch. We're facing off David Gordon Green and Jeff Nichols. Please also check out our sister podcast. That's Film Spotting SVU. It's a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer. They focus on the world of online movies. You can find out more at filmspotting.net or at filmspottingsvu.com. A couple of new releases coming out this week. On VOD, we have something called Bone Tomahawk. A horror western with Kurt Russell, Richard Jenkins, and Patrick Wilson. This isn't Tarantino's movie, right? No, sounds no, like Tarantino. I don't know. Diddly do. All right, that. Bone Tomahawk on VOD and wide release. Gem and the Holograms, an adaptation of the '80s animated TV series. I could sing a fair amount of the theme song to that for you, Michael. No, actually, I'll spare you that. My sisters used to watch that show when we were kids. The Last Witch Hunter. Apparently, that's Vin Diesel. Rock the Casbah, Michael. Mm. This was your number three question. Of the fall movie mm-hmm, season. Can mm-hmm. Barry Levinson still make a good comedy? Mm-hmm. This has Bill Murray. Can you answer that question yet? Mm-hmm. I could. <laughs> you, you don't want to. I could. I think you just did. It's, uh... Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, is also in wide release, as is Steve Jobs. One limited opening here in Chicago this weekend we want to mention is Room. This has been one of the standout films of the fall festival. Brie Larson's performance. A lot of people are raving about that. It's directed by Frank's Lenny Abrahamson. Can you give us more than mumbles about Room, Michael? Yeah, I know. Seen... Room, Room is worth seeing. It's, okay. uh, Brie Larson is terrific in it, and it's uh, it's based on this really intense uh, Emma Donahue uh, novel about uh, an, an abductee uh, and her five-year-old son living in a 10-by-10 garden shed because they're you know being held captive for years. And you, know, you think this is going to be a claustrophobic nightmare of an experience. It's not. And uh, I saw it at Telluride and was was eager to get back to it a second time. I have some problems with it, but it's worth seeing. Really good. All right. Gets the Michael Phillips stamp of approval. We might review Room next week. It's looking more likely, though, that we're going to do an Edward Scissorhands revisit. This would be a blind spotting for Adam, a sacred cow review for me. I've seen it a couple of times. Maybe we could call it a blind cow review. But we might do that along with our top five 1990 movies. Michael, always Have a blast when you're able to sit in, whether it's to fill in for Adam like this week or when you join the both of us 
Lots of new releases, as we mentioned earlier, coming out. If people want to catch up with your print reviews of all those, they can find it at chicagotribune.com slash movies, yes, correct? Yes, yes. Anything else going on Why don't you, why don't you just become a Tribune subscriber? It just takes like 10 seconds of aggravation. And, Even and, better. And then I can feed my kids. <laughs> I'm sick of this free stuff. Come on, Michael. I am. No, <laughs> So greedy. They got to eat. <laughs> Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, the show wouldn't. Go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everybody at Chicago Public Media. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Music this week was by Murder by Death from their new album Big Dark Love. More information at murderbydeath.com. And for Film Spotting, I'm Michael Phillips. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. That is it. If you want to hear what one really funny, I mean, not not that you need any music, but if you if you see the uh, f- film Silk Stockings with Fred Astaire, yeah, yeah. it's like the Ninochka movie. It's Ninochka, yes. but and there's a there's a oh. there's there's some great uh, there's a number called the Red Blues. Yeah, you know where they're like basically trying to write like top forty Tim Pan Alley of these Russians. We got the Red Blues, and it's it's very funny. It's like one minute that you could you could play as a sort of a fade out. If All you right. Want, but. There's a suggestion for you, Sam. You got the red blue.